0: All right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be uh, looking at verses 11 to 30 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can find this printed in the bulletin. Um, part of our passage this morning, before I read it, uh, verses 27 to 30, if you'll look down at it, uh, many people consider that to be the most important part of Mark, Mark the whole gospel of Mark, the whole, most important. Some call it the climax or the sort of the pinnacle, the peak of the whole gospel And it's because of what Jesus says about, or what Peter says about Jesus in verse 29. Four simple words. You are the Christ. And that, in a sense, is a summary of everything in Mark. Well, we're going to spend uh, two weeks looking at that idea. Uh, This week, we're going to look at the confession and what comes before it. And then next week, we're going to look at the confession in light of what comes after it. All right, so two whole weeks just thinking about this issue of faith and what does it mean to say you are the Christ. Let me read it and we'll dive in for this week. The Pharisees came uh, and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they did not have any bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not yet enter into the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one, About him. The word of the Lord, amen. There are a very many, if you think about it, a very many definitions of faith in the world, aren't there? Um, Just about for every person, you can find a new definition of what faith is in its essence. Uh, I find this especially to be true today uh, as I talk to people around our local area here in Mulberry and Polk County. I'm seeing it more and more. And as I read um, surveys of the national scene in America, American religious life, I'm seeing it more and more. Uh, More people identify themselves as nuns than ever before. Now, not nuns like, you know, the Roman Catholic nun, but nuns spelled like N-O-N-E-S. Have you ever heard of that? They call them the nuns. And basically, uh, since the year 2000, the numbers of people that on surveys will check that out of all the religions, all the denominations, I have no religion, I'm a nun, has risen to over a quarter of the population. And that's true here in Mulberry and Polk County too. We actually have surveys of this area locally, and that's just as true here as anywhere else. Now what I've found is I've I've talked to people, I, I know a lot of people who would consider themselves nuns. And yet, I find it's not that they think they have no faith. This is important to think about. It's not that they don't believe they have faith. It's not that they don't believe in God, for example, or even something about Jesus that's sort of positive. In fact, most people do. The numbers are still very high on that. What it is, is that they have gone from having a faith that has some organization to it, some guidance or guidelines, to a faith that's mostly self-defined and so more and more as, as, as we talk to people and interact with people maybe even in your own family you'll see this uh, everybody has their own version of faith now you might say well why are you complaining about that that's a good thing well first of all I'm not complaining You jump to conclusions about me, right? (laughs) I think actually this provides a wonderful opportunity, actually, to help people see clearly what real faith is. It's a good thing that people still are open to at least hearing some things about faith. But secondly, if I would complain about it, here's why I would complain. Do you think it's a good thing for everybody to be their own pope? I mean, on Reformation Sunday, I'll say it boldly, even the pope is not a good pope to have. Because ultimately what the only pope, the only authority that you should listen to when it comes to faith is the Holy Spirit speaking in God's word. And so, you know, a lot of people treat faith as if it's the wildflowers that grow on the middle of the median in the highway. You just let them grow and whatever pops up, pops up. Jesus in this passage shows his disciples patiently that faith is more like a garden that he plants and tends. Y'all ready to talk about that? Uh, Look at your bulletin. Let's look together, first of all, at the confession of Peter. So we're going to start at the end of the passage, verses 27 to 30. What is faith? Then we're going to go back to the beginning. Why is unbelief so dangerous to faith? Verses 11 to 21. And then lastly, how can unbelief be overcome? Verses 22 to 26. You ready? All right, let's look at the end. What is faith? This confession of Simon Peter, starting in verse 27, is a beautiful portrait of faith. Faith is not wildflowers growing on the median. Faith is a cultivated garden given by Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice, in the confession, there are two sides to faith. And you can't have one without the other and have real faith. Uh, Kids in the room, uh, if you look at a coin, maybe you have a coin in your pocket. If you look at that coin, what two sides does a coin have, every single coin? Heads and tails. Uh, how do you tell the difference between them? Well, in America, typically, on our coins at least, the head has a head on it. And the tail usually has a you know eagle or something like that or whatever, the White House or whatever it is on the other side of the coin. I'm displaying my ignorance with what's on the back of our coins. Um, not sure. There's something on the back of there. Usually, some type of building or animal. Well, even if think about this, even if you were to take a metal grinder and grind down the images on both sides of the coins, and you just had a blank coin, don't you still have a coin with a heads and a tails, even though you can't tell the difference between them? Because it's impossible to have a one-sided coin. Everybody following me? By definition, a circular object called a coin has side A, side B, no matter how it's marked. Well, faith is kind of like that. Faith always has two sides. But actually the thing about faith is the two sides are always well marked. Let's look at them. Uh, Jesus, as they're going to Caesarea Philippi on the way, asked his disciples two questions. And each of those questions represents one of the two sides of the coin, right? He says first to the disciples, who do people say that I am? What's he asking about there? He's asking about surveys, popular opinion, the wildflowers in the middle of the median. What are the things that people believe about me just naturally? What is growing up out there in the median? And the disciples come back with their answer. that They've heard a lot, after all, about Jesus as they've gone around. Uh, Some people think he's John the Baptist, sort of come back from the dead. Some think he's Elijah back from heaven. Other people think he's one of the other prophets. Uh, You can kind of see a common theme there. Most people believe Jesus is a prophet, but no more. That, That is the natural sort of wildflower version of faith in Jesus. He's a good man. He's a good teacher. He teaches us good things. We respect him. Oh, yes, Jesus, right? That's what everybody naturally believes when they hear about Jesus. But he wants to know something else. Something in a sense more important than that. He asks, do you see this, verse 29, but who do you say that I am? And there's the first side of real faith according to Jesus, the personal side, the personal aspect to faith. Uh, Jesus is not so much concerned that you know what other people know about Jesus and can answer that question, although that's got some value. What he's most concerned with for them and for us is, what do you say about Jesus? What have you done with me? How are you responding to what I say and do and what I'm claiming to be in your life? Are you responding with um, compliance? Are Are you responding with joy? Or are you responding like the Pharisees respond? Arguing with me and trying to put me to the test and ignoring what I say. The personal aspect of faith, absolutely vital. Uh, You can know, for example, what your pastor thinks about Jesus. You can know what your parents think about Jesus. You can know what your grandparents think about Jesus. You can know what Martin Luther thought about Jesus and John Calvin and all the rest. But at the end of the day, if you can't answer the question, what do you think and do about Jesus? You have not made that next step into true faith. It's wildflowers in the median and not cultivated garden. It requires the hand of Jesus to cultivate a personal belief in him. That's That's what's going on here. In fact, interestingly, the word that Peter uses about Jesus, the Christ, is a word only used two times up to this point in Matthew, or in Mark, excuse me. Two times. Can you guess what the other time is that Christ is used in the gospel of Mark? Chapter 1, verse 1. Which was not even a part of the story or a part of the dialogue. It was just basically the heading of the gospel. where, Where Mark says, here's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And from there to here, nobody else has uttered that word. What that's showing us is that it took Jesus all the effort, all the teaching, all the miracles, all that he's done to get just one group of men to finally believe what he set out to have them believe about him. What does that tell you about faith? It ain't easy. It don't come natural. Uh, It's not just sort of self-derived. It is something cultivated. By the hands of an an actually almighty gardener, the best of all gardeners of the human heart, because he's the one who made the human heart, do you see? The personal dependence of faith where every single part of our lives goes out to and trusts and rests on Jesus. That's so important. You know, James is one of my favorite writers in the Bible because he's so sharp. Like he, he cuts when he writes. And I, sometimes I like that. It disturbs me and keeps me on my toes. In James chapter 2, he says, hey, guys, do you believe there's a God? And everybody's like, yeah, of course we do. We're not atheists. And James says, good job. Even the devil believes that. What's he highlighting there? He's highlighting the difference between faith, which is just reporting what is true out there, what other people think is true, and faith, which embraces what you know to be true. That's what Satan's missing. He knows there's a God. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. He knows more than we know, actually, about theology right this very moment. And yet he doesn't trust a bit of it. He doesn't love a bit of it. He doesn't try to live his life on on the basis of a bit of it. Real faith is personal dependence. But it's more than that. The other side of the coin of faith is real-life objectivity. Real-life facts. On which to base what you personally have embraced. That's what Peter is saying when he says those four simple words You are the Christ. I can't think of a creed or confession of faith more simple than that. And yet it is full of meaning because that word Christ, like we said, only appears twice in this gospel, but it appears many, many times in the Old Testament, like in our passage that we read earlier, Isaiah 42. Where God foretells the Anointed One with a capital A, which is what Christ means, the Messiah with a capital M, who would be sent by God into the world to save the world from their sins, to open the eyes of the blind, to unstop the deaf ears, to release prisoners from the prison of their sin and shame, and to bring them into, once again, a personal relationship with God. Peter has come to recognize that's exactly who Jesus is. You're not just a good teacher. You're not just a prophet. You're not just Elijah all over again. You are actually the one Elijah dreamed about. You're the one that kept Daniel up at night and he saw visions about. You're the one that John the Baptist says, well, I can't even tie his sandals for him. Something amazing has happened. Two sides of the coin of faith have been cultivated into Peter's heart and the disciples' heart after all that time that they spent with Jesus. They had a real objective reality to base their faith on, not their own ideas, not other people's ideas, and they personally had embraced those ideas. That's faith. Now, this morning, is your faith personal like that? Is it personal? What have you done with Jesus? What have I done with Jesus? That's that's the question. The question in verse 29 is the question of your life, I would argue with you, to to convince you of that. Who do you say that Jesus is? But not only that, is your faith based on something that means something? (laughs) Is it based on something solid? Are you just letting it grow like wildflowers? Or are you saying to God, God, speak to me? God, give me a basis on which to build my faith that's more than just me or just another people, popular opinion. Is it personal? Is it founded? That's faith, okay? We've got to move to the second thing, which is the danger of unbelief. And we're going to go back to the beginning of the story now to see what happened before Peter made this confession. In verse 11, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they come looking for what? What are they looking for? Look at verse 11. A sign. But it tells you why they want a sign. Why do they want it? They want to test him, and they want to actually argue with him. Now, those two words are interesting, argue and test. They're used a bunch of times in the New Testament. Almost always they're used negatively. Uh, They describe what you do when you don't like somebody and what they do when they don't like you. They're just always trying to pick a fight, trying to argue, trying to prove you wrong, trying to show you up, which is what essentially the word test is. You're trying to trap somebody so that you can show them up in front of everybody else to show that you're right and they're wrong. That was the Pharisees' attitude. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. We've been paying attention. The Pharisees hate Jesus. We knew this. They're prejudiced against Jesus. They just aren't open at all to what he has to say, at least most of them aren't. And right there, if you'll just capture that in your mind, take a picture of that, you see what unbelief really is at its heart. Do you want a definition of unbelief? Write down the word prejudice. That's unbelief when it comes to God. Um, Unbelief is not merely an intellectual problem. Although sometimes it involves intellectual problems, I, I grant you that, for sure it does. Faith, I mean, unbelief at its heart is a heart problem, rooted in a prejudice against God which undermines every one of our faculties, our thinking faculty, our feeling, ability to feel, our ability to make decisions, our desires, all those things are affected by unbelief because we're dead set against the thing that we're being called to believe, we're just closed. And Jesus, there in verse 13, does one of the saddest things you'll ever read about Jesus doing. After he sighed deeply in his spirit over their hard-headedness, it says he left them. Do you see that? He left them, got in the boat, and went to the other side. Have you ever sighed deeply about someone in your spirit? Right? I mean, from time to time, we get frustrated with people, and it's just a a small little... But then there are times where someone has just broken your heart and and they've just absolutely run you through the ringer. And that's what we're talking about with a spirit sigh. (laughs) Where it's like not just outwardly but inwardly, you are just deflated by their rock-hard head and their flinty heart. That's Jesus over the Pharisees. And he walks away from them and he gets in a boat and he leaves them in his wake And he doesn't actually, from here on out, really look back. From here on to the end of the gospel, it's Jesus versus the Pharisees. It's not, let me try to convince you, it's just, we are enemies. You're going to hand me over and you're going to kill me and I'm going to leave you. Isn't that sad? That's why as soon as they get in the boat, verse 14, the first thing Jesus does is he warns his disciples about what's going on in them. You see that? He says, I'm warning you, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, the fact that they had forgotten to bring bread, that's just a little detail which explains why Jesus would start talking about bread as an illustration of the point he wants to make. Uh, they were a little slow in the uptake, like we are sometimes, and the whole time they're like, okay, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Is he saying we shouldn't buy bread from the Pharisees? Uh, who should we buy bread from? You know, not, we can't buy it from Herod. Doesn't Herod own all the bread because he's the king? I don't know what we're going to do. And Jesus is like, guys, come on. This is exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Beware of that. Because that leaven that I'm speaking about, that yeast, is the yeast of unbelief. The yeast of prejudice against God. The, the yeast of, of sin In opposition to God, it was in the Pharisees and had eaten them up. Which, by the way, is what leaven does. Um, This is why it's used as a symbol in the Bible. A little bit of yeast put into a whole lump of dough does what? Makes the whole thing yeasty. It leavens the whole thing. The whole thing rises. Have you ever seen a, a loaf of bread that was half leavened and half unleavened? You won't find it because that thing is a little, it's like a little germ, Levin. It's like a little, it's organic. It's like a little germ that just spreads and spreads and spreads. And it doesn't stop spreading until it reaches the ends of the lump. Unbelief works that way. A little bit in the heart will spread. It will metastasize. It will grow deadly. Case in point, Pharisees, Herod. Isn't it remarkable, though, that to his disciples, his disciples were the only ones in the boat, to them, his boys, the ones who are just about to say the great confession, you are the Christ, to them, Jesus says, beware and watch out because the same leaven can infect you. There's a lesson here, y'all. I think there's a profound lesson. Uh, you know, in, in Florida, we all know there's a difference between a watch and a warning. Hurricane, tornado. What, what's a hurricane watch? Yeah. It might come. It might not. You're within the cone, three days out, right? And so everybody's just still kind of taking it easy. What's a warning? Like, it's there. Uh, It's probably too late, actually, to get fully ready. It's just coming whether you like it or not and whether you're ready or not. Isn't it interesting? Jesus uses both words here about the leaven of unbelief. It says he warned them, cautioned them, verse 15. And then he said, watch out, be careful, because it's out there somewhere. But then he says, beware. As if to say, y'all, I'm talking to you about something that's out there. It's in the Pharisees. It's in Herod. But I'm also talking to you about something that can be and is in you. That can threaten you. That can harm you if you don't do something about it. Whether you consider yourself a believer today or, or whether you consider yourself not yet a believer, I want you to hear this. The Bible says all of us still have the remnants of unbelief in our hearts. The seeds Of the yeast that, if left unchecked, will take over. The reason why it is not a good thing to treat faith like wildflowers in the median. Because don't you know that everything that comes out of the human heart is not good? I mean, isn't that right? Many things that come out of the human heart are positively evil. And so, if you take the approach of, well, I have no commitments, but I believe. What do you believe? Whatever I feel at any given moment. What you're doing is you're just saying, grow flowers. Flowers of my heart bloom. And at the end of the day, you may think that's cool and great and fun and exciting. But at the end of the day, you will be in the sad position of Herod and the Pharisees where Jesus walks away. We need the gardener to tend the various things that come out of our hearts, to plant the right things in, to pull the wrong things out. Now, someone may say, well, wait a minute. I don't think I struggle with unbelief. I'm a strong believer. Let's pay attention more carefully here. Notice the two examples Jesus uses, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, the Pharisees and Herod, we already know from Mark chapter 3, they were together already plotting to kill Jesus. So they both have the same hatred to Jesus. But isn't it fascinating, their hatred, their unbelief is very different from one another. I Think about the Pharisees. Why were they full of unbelief? What was it that was blocking them from Jesus? Self-righteousness, pure and simple, right? That was, they were very religious and they prided themselves on it. Uh, it's so religious, in fact, that they actually believe they could write better rules than God did. Literally. We, we talked about that a few weeks ago. They wrote their own rules and replaced God's rules with their rules because they thought they were that good. Well, self-righteousness is a form of unbelief, whether you think so or not. Because self-righteousness says, instead of listening to the righteousness that God has established and the righteousness he wants to give me in his son Jesus as a gift, I'm trying to build and weave my own clothing of righteousness to cover myself with. Well, if you're busy trying to make your own clothes, are you going to be paying attention to the clothes God's offering you? That was why the Pharisees actually hated Jesus. He was talking about all these other clothes that they weren't making. Do you struggle with self-righteousness? Does anybody not struggle with self-righteousness? Well, think about Herod. He's the opposite problem. Uh, Why did Herod have such a hard time with Jesus? Self-service. Okay? Self-righteousness on the one hand, self-service on the other. You see, Herod is the one. uh, He used religion as a convenience. Remember it said uh, way back in um, chapter 6 of Mark that Herod loved to hear John the Baptist preach. It was like a hobby. He loved to hear him preach because he was just so exciting. (laughs) Wow, what this guy, he's so exciting. But then when when John the Baptist started saying, but Herod, you should not have taken your brother's wife away from him and you should not have married your brother's wife. Then he was like, oh, this is not fun anymore. Go to jail. That's self-service. That's where I say I will use God and use religion so far as it is convenient to me. But the moment it becomes inconvenient, ooh, stepping on my toes, nope, I'm out. Also a form of unbelief, a form of prejudice. Self-righteousness works from a more religious standpoint. Self-serving works more from a non-religious standpoint, you could say, but both of them are equally ways to miss Jesus. Equally. Do you struggle with self-service? Does anybody not struggle with self-service? And so Jesus, I think his words are very warranted. Beware. Watch out. Caution. It is both a watch and a warning. It is out in the world. You can see it, but it's also right at your doorstep, and you are very much within the cone of certainty. Do not leave faith to chance. Because faith does not come by chance. Faith, y'all, comes by grace, leading us to the third thing, which is how unbelief can be overcome and faith can come in. And here we have the story in verses 22 to 26 of Jesus healing this blind man. By the way, in a very unusual way. Uh, Jesus doesn't often spit on folks. But we saw it last week he did it, right? He spit and then he touched the man's tongue, the deaf and mute man. This week he spit straight up in the man's eyes. It's kind of odd. What's he doing? Well, we've got to understand that Mark and Jesus both, Mark writing about Jesus and Jesus, they're not doing these things by accident. Mark's not writing this here by accident. This story is here, just a ra- seemingly random miracle story. After the discussion of unbelief, before the great confession that Peter makes, to show you how you go from one to the other. And so Jesus, it says there in verse 22, took the blind man away, or verse 23, took him off by himself and healed him so that he could be away from the crowd so that the disciples could watch it in detail what Jesus was doing. So that from it they would learn how Jesus makes faith and sustains faith in our lives. The man is blind. Blindness is a perfect illustration of unbelief because the sun can be as beautiful as ever and as bright as ever and a blind man looking at it don't know that. Jesus can be as glorious as ever. God can be as valuable as ever and yet me and my sin, I don't know that. I'm blind to it. And so Jesus comes and he spits in his eyes, he lays his hands on, and he asks him a question. Do you see anything? Kind of like asking, what do people say? Or who do people say that I am, right? That's the first question. Do you see anything at all? Who do people say that I am? And the man says, kind of like the disciples, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say one of the prophets. He says, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. You see what's happened? You know, the first touch of Jesus had healed the man only so far that now he could see light, he could see shapes, but he couldn't see well enough to tell a tree from a man. He had low vision. And so Jesus comes with another touch, a second touch. Verse 25, he laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly like Jesus saying but who do you say that I am and Peter saw it clearly you are the Christ not just a prophet not just another teacher the Christ the son of God one to whom I want to give my whole life one on whom I want to base my whole life and my whole salvation how did that happen in Peter the same way it happened in this man how does it happen in us the same way it happened with this man the touch of Jesus The touch of Jesus. Now do you think, let me ask you, this is an obvious question, but do you think Jesus touched him twice because, well, he did an accident and didn't effectively heal him the first time and had to go back in for another try? No. That doesn't make any sense. Because this is the Jesus who just says, go and the demons go, right? I mean, He doesn't need to do two touches to heal a blind man. He doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need to touch him at all. Why does he do it twice? Parents, do you have to feed your kids more than once? How many times do you have to feed your kids while they're living under your roof? Have you ever totaled that up? 18 years times, you know, 365 days times three. That's a lot. That's a lot. And maybe more than 18 years, right? (laughs) What Jesus is showing his disciples is, look, boys, the first beginnings of faith came when I touched you. And I took the blindness of your unbelief away and I gave you the gift of faith. I started cultivating your heart. But you know what? If you need more clarity, you come to the same place and the same touch. If you're struggling in some way with faith, I need... I've got the same touch. Uh, If you're doubting, if you're afraid, if you're worried, if you feel far away from God, i got the same touch today and tomorrow and the next day. You see, this is not teaching us we need exactly two touches instead of one touch from Jesus. This is showing we need touches. You see. We need a cultivator. We need a gardener who doesn't just plant the garden of faith, but he tends it daily. So Jesus reaches out and brings a man who's low vision, blind, makes him low vision, low vision makes him 20-20 vision. I talk to people sometimes who are seeking, you know, that they don't believe yet in Jesus, but they're trying to figure it out. And oftentimes the same thing happens, you know, they, they get really excited for a time, and, and sometimes I'll, I'll meet with them for a time and talk to them about Jesus, and then they kind of fall off the map, you know, they, they lose interest. And a lot of times uh, folks like that lose interest because they're so discouraged at how slow faith is in developing. They, they come to the conclusion that, well, Stan, I mean, maybe it's just you got the faith gene and I don't because I just can't do it. I can't get myself to believe what you believe. Here's what I want to say to that person, and maybe you're one of those people. You got to keep Asking, seeking, knocking, listening, because the only person who has the touch is Jesus. If you cut yourself off, if you say, look, I didn't get it in six weeks, so I'm not going to ever get it. And you go back to being a wildflower garden. That is not the way. That is not the way. The way is to keep coming. And yeah, it may take more than six months. Six months ain't actually all that long. Did you decide to marry your spouse in just six months? Maybe. But most of us took longer than six months. Are you going to decide to marry Jesus in just two weeks, six months, five weeks? No. It might take a long time. Keep coming. He's got the touch. I also talk to a lot of people in church who go through various things in their life that causes their faith to be very much discouraged. And and I know, man, Christians, we, we can get to places sometimes where we feel like we don't even have faith anymore. Where it just feels so hard to follow Jesus. Look at this story. Keep asking for open eyes. Keep coming to Jesus. Don't stop. The solution to your problem is not, I'm going to take my ball and go home. That's not it. Somebody might say, well, yeah, but the church has hurt me. Yeah, it's hurt me too. I'm not talking this morning about how the church needs to touch you and give you sight. (laughs) I'm talking about how Jesus needs to touch you and give you sight, right? There's a difference. Jesus is in the church, but Jesus is different than the church because the church is folks. And folks hurt folks. It's what we do. But Jesus touches and it it causes us to see clearly. Jesus touches it and it removes bitterness and pain. And yeah, it may take a long time. It may take many touches. But isn't it a good thing to know who the toucher is? (laughs) Right? Isn't Isn't it good to know? Isn't it good to be in his presence? Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 is writing to Christians when he says, For this reason, because I heard of your faith and love. See, they already have faith. I heard of your faith. And yet I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in your prayers, praying that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which God has called you. Now, if you still think being a Christian is a one and done after that, please revisit that idea, right? It's not a one and done. (laughs) It's a daily tending of the garden of your heart by the Savior who died for you. Amen? Don't give up.